Tuesday marks the first day of winter. New York City can get pretty cold this time of year. You might say, as cold as stone. Enter the theme for this week's Cityscape. Good morning. I'm George Borarki. This morning, we're taking a closer look at stone architecture in New York City. How do you weigh in this precious stone? Our research of the subject led us to Henry Stern, a former Parks Commissioner who now heads a watchdog group called New York Civic and apparently also wears another hat. I'm the founder of what we call 7A, the American Association for the Advancement and Appreciation of Animals in Art and Architecture. And uh, later, I became the co-top dog of this organization, along with Adrian Benepe, who at the time was Manhattan Borough Commissioner of Parks and was later appointed uh, to the top job. So you were Parks Commissioner at the time that you formed this organization? I don't think so. I, I was uh, president of Citizens Union at the time, and it was an extracurricular activity. What is the mission of this organization? Well, uh, to call public attention to and to generate uh, respect and admiration uh, for the beautiful animal sculptures which are throughout the city of New York. And uh, they, they are extremely, probably the largest collection ever, uh, but nobody knows about them most of the time. And we also promoted the use of the creation of sculpture of animals for use in children's playgrounds. Was there a particular incident that led you to create this organization, something that happened? Like Romulus and Remus, I was suckled by a wolf, and that developed in me an extraordinary identity uh, with members of the animal kingdom. When I was appointed uh, by Mayor Koch uh, to be Parks Commissioner the first time in 1983, I said I wanted to be a man for all species. And, of course, that includes our brothers and sisters, in the animal kingdom. And I've always regarded vegetarianism as, uh, well, right in a way, it's perfectly acceptable, but it's on no higher moral plane than uh, being omnivorous in eating because uh, at least uh, animals, you're eating your own kingdom, but in vegetarians are eating another innocent kingdom of plants which have to be cruelly detached from their stalks and uh, crammed into your mouth to be digested. Stick to your own kind. But you're not just an advocate for real-life animals. You're also an advocate for animals in architecture, animals made of stone. That's right, permanent animals. And I believe that there are thousands of them throughout the city of New York. Nobody really knows who they, where they are. They were sculpted by Italian craftsmen, many of them, in the early part of the 20th century. And then the gift was lost, and nowadays you don't see any animal sculpture. It's too complicated. But we have some buildings which are magnificent examples of animal art. Uh, for example, there's one uh, at the northwest corner of 86th Street and Park Avenue, which has 53 hares, running rabbits, and 22 turtles, tortoises. So, and they're on a frieze around the building, uh, just about the uh, third floor. That is uh, spectacular, and yet uh, people pass that building for 20 years, and they never look up and notice them. But you can actually see them from the ground level. Oh, yeah, they're big. Uh, you can see them without glasses. 
and uh, they are frolicsome, jumping hares. The building was put up in the 1920s. I think Condé Nast had something to uh, do with it, and uh, they are preserved, and well, I can't say they're lifelike because they're stone, but uh, the turtles are on a vertical axis looking up, and the rabbits are uh, on a sort of more horizontal, sort of jumping rabbits, and, of course, they illustrate uh, one of Aesop's most famous fables, the fable of the tortoise and the hare. Besides the tortoise and the hare, what other animals are you most impressed with on buildings in New York City? Well, lions are the most uh, stately uh, of animals, the king of beasts, as they refer to them, and there are lions along Park Avenue and other places. There's another building which is a plethora of animal art that we call an animal house. It's a building, a luxury apartment house, a condo, that goes from 67th to 68th Street between Park and Lexington Avenues, uh, 116 East 68th Street and 115 East 67th. And this has so many different animals scampering up and down the columns and the pillars that it's really a pleasure to watch. What are some of the things that your organization has got involved in? Has your organization been involved with fighting to preserve animals in stone? Were there any legal challenges? Legally, there's not much protection for a stone sculpture, which is on private property, unless the building is landmarked or it's part of a historic district. So what are some of the things your organization does to promote animals and architecture, to protect animals and architecture? Well, we have membership. Our membership is uh, $1 for a lifetime membership, and our slogan is, uh, your card expires when you do. Uh, We uh, also used to conduct safaris uh, in the Upper East Side and other areas, in which we took people to visit these uh, unique buildings, which have so much animal art. I remember the first one we assembled at the corner of 86th Street and Park Avenue, and to our great surprise, there were almost 200 people who were there uh, on the sidewalk, and the uh, super, and they rushed out, and they said, uh, what are you protesting? Because usually you only get crowds like that for a strike or a demonstration, and here he'd never seen that many people in the street and wanted to know why. And when we explained they were only there to admire the animals, he uh, was very relieved. What were the animals on that building? That's the tortoise and the hare building. That's the tortoise and the hare That's building. The, the capital of animal art in New York, I would say. But the, uh, the single most striking thing is the uh, one, one, 116 East 68th Street. It's right next to uh, Hunter College. And on the other side is the uh, Armory on Park Avenue. So it uh, has a quite a nice location. Why did you stop leading these safaris? They sound fantastic. They were a lot of fun, but it was a lot of work to organize them. And uh, I became parks commissioner shortly thereafter. And I guess I should have set up a division of animal affairs and uh, conducted the programs um, for the public, of course, as free tours. They were always free. We never charged anyone to look at the animals. Some things just lapse because you're doing other things. But if uh, it's great to see that you took an interest and you're here for this, and if the public wants to, uh, we'll do another safari in the spring. Why do you think it is that 
architects decided to put animals on buildings in the first place in the 19th century? Well, the decorative, for one thing, you, you don't have just a blank stone wall or concrete or uh, brick or something like that. Uh, people like ornamentation and decoration they have for since why did they do the, the why did the caveman do the paintings and the Cro Magnons thirty thousand years ago in France? They wanted uh, the decoration, and that impulse has been followed ever since. I guess animals themselves don't do decorative art, although they always talk about chimpanzees uh, splashing paint and people passing that off as works of art. I don't know if the requisite intention is formed in the chimpanzee's mind to create art. All right, Mr. Stern, anything else about animals in stone that you think we should know about? Well, I mean, there are historic uh, sculptures of animals that uh, are in other countries. I don't know about them, but I know that there are. And uh, I'd like to bring about greater sensitivity and awareness because if we see animals and we enjoy their pictures and their statues and their sculptors, sculpture, uh, we may act in a more friendly way uh, to them. I'm not so far as to say don't eat them uh, because I'm just a movement I'm not involved in. But uh, we can certainly respect them and uh, be nice to them and certainly not be cruel. That's terrible. And if someone wants to become a card-carrying member of this organization, how do they go about doing that? Well, they should just be in touch with me. They can, they can reach me at StarQuest, S-T-A-R-Q-U-E-S-T. That's my park name. StarQuest at, you know, the at sign, nycivic.org, nycivic.org. And we should set up a website, if we haven't, for 7A. Morgan is my capable uh, chief of staff, and I'm certain we'll probably do that in a few days so that people can write to 7A because it's too long to have them write to the American Association for the Advancement and Appreciation of Animals in Art and Architecture. Henry Stern, thank you so much for your time. It's my pleasure. Henry Stern is the founder and president of a group called 7A, a former New York City Parks Commissioner and the head of the watchdog group New York Civic. This is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Good morning once again. I'm George Bodarki. Our theme this morning is cold as stone as we prepare to usher in the first day of winter on Tuesday. Our next guest is the author of two picture books documenting architectural sculpture in New York City. Robert Arthur King, thank you so much for being here. You're welcome. You have put together these two great collections of faces, figures, creatures, and animals that adorn buildings throughout New York City. The first is called Faces in Stone. The second is called Animals in Stone. What sparked your interest in these stone sculptures? Initially, I took a course at the uh, Empire State College with Mel Rosenthal and Abby Robinson, and the class was called Women in Photography. And one of the assignments was to photograph women. And being a little shy, which some don't believe, I found it difficult to go to women and not have to ask permission to shoot, photograph them. I may have to get a release. And then I discovered, being an architect, these women on buildings, 
They were there all the time. They didn't require a release. Uh, they posed very well every time I saw them. They don't move, that's for sure. Not at all. They were just there waiting for me. So I started doing it, and then I got a little carried away. And um, I just photographed. I noticed throughout the entire city there were these women on buildings and men on buildings and animals and flowers, and I just started to photograph them. What did your instructor think when you went back with these photographs of stone women? Very clever. That was his most his basic response. It was a way of keeping my profession and also doing my assignment. In doing this project, did you come across any recognizable faces on New York City buildings? Um, on the more famous buildings, like the uh, Woolworth Building, you'll find a photograph of the architect Cass Gilbert, the owner F.W. Woolworth. But in other buildings, it was difficult to identify who they were. Um, and, Prospect Park West in Brooklyn, one building particularly I felt it was the family, probably the owner or developer's wife and his two daughters. Things like that I discovered. In the Lower East Side, there was one particular person that was on several buildings, and I believe he was the cantor or the rabbi during that time of the construction. Are most of these sculptures visible from street level? Yes. There's, some of them are in the third Second, first, second, and third floor, some of them are on the top of the building, like the fifth floor. And so it took a little challenging to, to photograph them. So what did you do? Did you just set out on foot with your camera in hand? And walk for miles, miles of walking, and just going to different neighborhoods and just walk. It's the only way to see them. And some people were rather fascinated just watching me look up, and many of them thought I was a tourist walking around the city. And the critical thing was some buildings were are morning buildings or some afternoon that depended on the sun and the orientation of the building. Which face in Faces in Stone is your favorite? Actually, Viola. She's on Mulberry Street. And um, <laughs> for some reason, she struck me, and I would actually go by and visit her to see what, how she was doing. Was she still in the same shape that she was? And I wouldn't tell many people because then I want to get my wife jealous. But she was, I thought she was gorgeous, and that's why she's on the cover. Now, how do you know that her name is Viola? Because over the building, right above there, is inscribed the name Viola. And some buildings have names, which I thought were very fascinating as well. But hers were particular, gave her name, Viola. Did you feel the need at all, though, to take this a step further then and research who Viola was? Many of the faces, they were done by artisans or craftsmen and who were basically unknown. Sometimes the owner would request it, but most of this is verbal. I've, uh, the fellow contacted me, and his great-grandfather, uh, Frederick Adam Ball, was one of the sculptors of the time, and I photographed some of his work. And basically, they just picked a face, any face, put it up there, but there's nothing, I found little, to nothing written on any of the sculptors. And I feel it's an art that usually gets ignored, and most people walk through the city never looking or even get to appreciate what's on the buildings. Did you ever find yourself making up stories about yeah. the faces? Well, particularly Viola, yes. What is the story of Viola in your head? I, I think she was probably a lady who lived in the neighborhood um, that the sculpture just really got captured by her face. And being, I don't think they were photographed, but they were probably molded at the time and then copied. 
Viola has attractive features, but yes. many of these faces are simply grotesque. Some, some are, yeah, and no justification, no understanding of why. I couldn't even explain it. But you have different cultures. Some of them you have African Americans, you have Native Native Americans, different ethnic groups, and what's interesting in different areas, like there's an African American in Chinatown. Is that right? Right near, right near the Five Points area, which is uh, where um, there's a Park Row and Bowery all meet, and she she's on the building. There's an Asian that's uptown. And so the, what is the reason? I don't I really have no justification. In the book on page 66, you have photographs of 162 Henry Street. Now, here is an example of one of those grotesque faces that mm-hmm. I was talking about. This is downright scary. Yes. And it's about four stories up, too. I mean, some initially the gargoyles and things were put in buildings to ward off evil spirits. Possibly there was some relationship. Not clear. Don't know. Most of the sculptures were done roughly from after the Civil War up until about 1920, and that's when you had most of it done. And the biggest impact on that type of artwork, which costs money, was the uh, 1913 income tax. When that came out, a lot of the mansions and large developments ceased because now the government knew exactly what people were making, Hmm. so they had to cut back. And so in turn, economics plays an important part in this. The field, but there were some done, and um, some animals right across from the now Yankee Stadium on River Street, where it's an Art Deco building built in the 30s with some gorgeous animals on the building, which is fascinating. New York City is like a zoo of sorts with all of these animals that adorn buildings throughout the five boroughs. Yes, and some of the, I found um, seals on 72nd Street off Columbus, a pigeon on Crescent Street in the Bronx. A kangaroo on 7th Avenue at about 38th Street. Who would expect to find that? Because most of the animals you see are lions or things like that. But these were, I thought, were unique type of animals. A lot of eagles, too, I noticed around New York eagles. City. Banks usually represent eagles. And many of these animals had symbols. They represented certain symbols. In, di- in different cultures, they represent different things, which I thought was fascinating. There are a couple of squirrels in your book that I am particularly fond of. On Broadway and um, about 94th Street, there's some squirrels. And I found a rabbit and a hare on, I believe it was 86th or 79th Street in Park Avenue, which I thought was interesting, a little play on the tortoise and the hare. There's one in the book that I think is a bulldog, but I'm not sure, at 149 East 38th Street? That was a stable. On either side of that bulldog, there are there are two horses. And it was my belief, or I could think, that the bulldog was one of the animals in the stable to control the horses. So it had symbolism. And many of the garages that one would see now, there's one on Convent Avenue at about 150th Street. It's a garage now, but outside there are two horses on either side of the entrance. So it was a way of expressing what goes on within the building. I asked you which was your favorite face, which is your favorite animal. I would, mm, that's a tough one. I like the squirrel, but actually the, on 40, uh, 149th Street in the Bronx, off of 3rd Avenue, there are fish. There's a fish tank. And I thought it was unique. And uh, throughout the city, and I've co- covered a lot of areas, I found nothing similar to that. 
You mentioned the bulldog and the horses, but do the animals that adorn other buildings ever help to convey what goes on or what went on inside the building? Most cases not. Yeah, they were just symbols to express. Actually, in the garment district, there is a cat, and the cat is holding a spool of thread. And so, obviously, that that kind of symbol. Why a cat? I don't know. But the spool of thread within the garment district. That's a great one. I have to yes. check that one out. Yeah, that's. Um, I have actually um, what they've put in the book. I have maybe five or six times as many uh, animals and faces. And I now started photographing flowers. Flowers on buildings. Flowers in stone. Flowers in stone. That's the next compilation, huh? Well, as soon as the publisher and I think book sales are down, but um, that's my next venture. How long did it take you to put these two books together? How many Uh, days did you spend out there? I would try to spend maybe two days, a day to two days a week, and roughly five hours each time, as long as my legs could hold out. That's how long I spent. And I would have my friends with me sometimes to keep me company. And one of my friends, I would talk about us going out uh, to shoot some animals or some women, and she would always correct me that I must say photograph. Photograph, yes. yes. (laughs) No, you have to watch yourself. (laughs) Someone overhearing that, (laughs) they'll get a police officer. (laughs) Another additional thing in the city is one can't use a tripod outside, so that made it much more challenging. How come? Photographing. Well, it's a law now they, that if you, have, you can't use a tripod unless you get a permit uh, to photograph. Do you know the reasoning for that? Um, I, don't, I think after 9-11, things changed. Hmm. So I now have a monopod, because the law does say tripod, and, um, and a steady hand. Are most of these carvings made of a specific type of stone, or does it vary? Very, it varied. The stones vary. From some, some granite, some limestone, it varied. How long do you think it took someone to sculpt this kind of thing? Um, a fellow contacted me, and as I mentioned before, his uh, grand, great-grandfather worked on the Vanderbilt house. Uh, Frank Adam Ball was his name. And he sent me some literature and information on his grandfather, and many of them would take sometimes just about a week or so to do. And they would do it in a, um, in a factory. Many of them were located in Brooklyn and then ship it to the site. Incredible craftsmen, yeah. huh? And, and so unfortunate them, that they're unknown. Th- and that's the sad part. And and it's not appreciated. One of the other things that I, in taking these pictures, I tried to go in areas that were not well-known, photographing buildings that were not famous, in areas that are depressed, and to really show this art throughout the city, and de- not in the more fashionable districts, but in areas that are not so fashionable. That being said, are some of these sculptures in jeopardy of just falling apart because they're not maintained? And the buildings being torn down, and that's, and it's happened often. Uh, there's one building, particular building on York Avenue, that uh, in about 60, right across from the Rockefeller Institute, that I photographed, and it looked like a, a, a sculpture of... One of the explorers, like Dakota, the Soto of Coronado, and I went back two years later, and it was gone. And I was shocked. They renovated the cornice of the building, and I mean, I thought about trying to make a citizen's arrest because it spoiled the artwork of the city. But that's an example, and they didn't care. Did they think about restoring it? I doubt it. Unless the building has landmark status. That's the only way. 
the only way. But even if it doesn't have the landmark status, I think one should be sensitive to the art and the sculptures on buildings and to appreciate them because it did give the building a certain character and now it's gone. Both of these books include maps so you can create walking tours to see these sculptures up close and personal, right? Yes, right. And just again, there's many more if one look, look, just looks up. And also there's a train station, bus routes in order to get to these different places as well. Robert Arthur King, the books are Animals in Stone and Faces in Stone. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you also. Both Faces in Stone and Animals in Stone are published by Norton. Now on to something else stone-related in New York City. The old stone house in Brooklyn brings alive a piece of city history. With us now is Kim Mayer, the executive director. Kim, thanks for taking the time. You're welcome. Thanks for calling and, and wanting to know more about us. This house has been called one of the nation's most important revolutionary war sites. Now, what is the history behind this house? This building that I'm speaking to you from now is a reconstruction from the 1930s, but the original house, uh, the Vect Home, was built in 1699 on the uh, shores of the Gowanus Creek. And it was a family farm, and up until the time of the Revolutionary War, uh, you know, it was a, a Dutch family site with heavy agriculture near a mill pond. And uh, during the Battle of Brooklyn in August of 1776, which was the first major engagement fought by the United States Army, because it was the first battle fought after the Declaration of Independence, um, the British plan of attack uh, at the beginning of the Revolutionary War in New York was to create a pincer maneuver that would cut off the Americans and end the rebellion in five days. And the action of the battle, sort of the nadir of the battle, was here at the house. Uh, the Battle of Brooklyn was quite short. It only lasted about six hours. But the actions of William Alexander and the Maryland and Delaware troops here at the House really saved the American army. Now, as you mentioned, the House as it stands today is a recreation. But did the House survive the battle? It did survive the battle, and it was continued to be used as a farm. It was purchased by the Cortelli family in 1778, and they owned it up until the mid-1800s when it was purchased by Edwin Litchfield and developed into a ball field that was called Washington Park, hence the, the name of our park today. And it was the original home of the Brooklyn Dodgers. Is that right? It's absolutely right. The Brooklyn baseball team, Brooklyn Baseball Club, uh, which is the team that became the Dodgers, played here. And it was the first field that Charlie Ebbets worked at as a ticket taker. So then what happened to the original house? It gradually was buried. Um, after the Dodgers moved or the Brooklyn Baseball Club moved to their new field, a more you know modern contemporary field, one block over, Litchfield continued to use this area as a landfill site as he developed the upper slope. And so the house, as it became more dilapidated, was eventually buried and uh, we're on about 15 feet of landfill here. So when they were developing the park in the 1930s, uh, it was a Robert Moses project, part of his sort of playground expansion program. There was knowledge that the original house was there, about 100 feet from the curb at 3rd Street and 5th Avenue. And so uh, I guess under a certain amount of pressure from historians and people in the community who realized the importance of the original house, uh, Moses 
had parks dig up the uh, stone from the original building and use that material to construct the building that's here in the park today. So all of that stone is original? All of the exterior stone, about 85%, I guess you'd say, is original. And then the brickwork is not authentic. Were old photos used to help recreate the house? Yes. There are photos of the original building. You can see it sort of nestled right up against the tenements on Fifth Avenue and uh, really get an idea of the original house. And it's an interesting building because most of the uh, farmhouses in Brooklyn at the time were obviously made of wood, but this is more like an Amsterdam townhouse, a long, narrow building built from stone. And the 1699 on the eaves of the original house and the reconstruction today sort of marks this um, mid-Atlantic Dutch building style of these iron tie rods that were used as roof supports. What are some of the things that take place at the house today? That is a very active place. We have an education program that serves uh, nearly 6,000 school kids. They come to the house to learn about the Dutch colonial era. Sounds like a great place to visit during a New York City staycation. Absolutely. Absolutely. You can visit our website and see all of our events, and there's something happening almost every week here at the house. Kim Mayer, thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. Thanks so much for calling us. That was Kim Mayer. She's the executive director of the Old Stone House in Brooklyn. Check them out at theoldstonehouse.org. Don't you sometimes wish your heart was a hard stone? And that's it for this week's Cityscape. Don't forget you can visit wfuv.org slash cityscape to get past editions of the show. And don't have a heart of stone. Help us reach our goal of 200 likes on Facebook and 300 followers on Twitter by Christmas. We're listed on both as WFUV's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to senior producer Andrea McCreary and producer Morlene Chin. Have a great weekend. Oh, boy.